and welcome to Sustain. Our podcast guest today is exceptional in at least one, if not many ways. First off, he's the only podcast guest we've had who's asked explicitly, who are you three people talking to us? So he asked <laughs> Richard, Justin, and Eric, that's us three, to describe where we come from. And that was such a good start that we figured let's just roll with it. Okay. Do you mind if I um, ask a little bit about your background and how you guys are all related to this whole deal? Not at all. You're um, the first person to ever ask. Thank you. I started Code Fund about four years ago, which is an advertising network focusing on providing funding to open source. During that time, I joined the Sustain Group to help organize a couple of the Sustain events. One of them was in, in San Francisco. San Francisco. London. One of them was in London. One of them was in uh, Belgium. I'm an ex-member of the Open Source Collective Board, and I've been highly engaged in the funding side of open source for quite a while. I'm doing consulting here and there with companies that are trying to break into that space and learn more about that space. But it's definitely a passion of mine. Over the past year, I've kind of shut off any direct work in that area because after shutting a company down after four years, I just burned out and I had to walk away. So I'm slowly starting to come back into the space, but we've been doing the podcast for, I think, a year and a half now. And how about you, Richard? I have been an open source developer for the past 10 years or something. And over time, given my skill set, I sort of moved to community facilitation and towards podcasting and towards running things like Sustain, because I'd rather be an enabler of other people. And I like talking to people more than I like fixing bugs. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I do. And now I, I'm the main person behind this podcast. It didn't used to be that way, but just because... I really enjoy it. And I show up every time. They just decided, okay, let's make you the point person. So that's kind of what I do. I'm the producer now. That's cool. Yeah. And Justin? Yeah, I've been in open source for about 10 years. I first got into it because I didn't understand how open source worked. And I was like, how do people get paid and all that other stuff? This was way back before I even started. And then once I started getting into it, I saw like, oh, there's other opportunities besides code to contribute. So my first contribution was a open free CDN for the Bootstrap framework. Bootstrap CDN, it got installed on 7 million sites. And basically, I helped give away $5 million of services to open source developers. So that just wow. kind of got me going, wow, this is really cool. Kia Mancini and I co-founded Sustain in 2016. And then it just kind of grew from there. This podcast is brainchild of Eric, and uh, it's just evolved ever since. And uh, yeah, I'm now at a company called Reblaze, which does layer seven security. And we have a open source project we just donated to CNCF called uh, CuriFence, which is a cloud native application security platform. So Steve Helby is joining us today. He is the VP of Channel for Open Compute Project which is super exciting. So can you tell us a bit about you, Steve? Sure. Part of the team at the Open Compute Project focused on channel development, and that means two things. End customer adoption, so getting more people to try open source hardware. And then number two is enabling a channel, so developing partners that want to sell and integrate and deliver open source hardware. So I've been with the foundation six plus years. Prior to that, it was all software, ERP, CRM, and then OpenStack. And then I took a look at this opportunity and I thought, well, I, I like the board. I like the initiative. I like developing a new supply chain. I'll do this for a couple of years and see how it goes. And then uh, six years later, and 
watching and much more into hardware than what I ever thought I would be. I still don't know that much about it. So I, I know open source exists as open source. Open hardware is something different. It means having the plans available to make the hardware if you wanted to make it, and that's under an open source license. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So the open source hardware, the OCP, our definition of open is that you have a specification that's been contributed under open source license, again, patent, non-assert license that then is available for anyone in the world. So there are no gates to go download these specifications. And then you can take those specifications and some design files and perhaps go manufacture the product yourself or go secure another manufacturer to make a similar product. So it was started by Facebook back in 2011. And at that time, Facebook was outgrowing their infrastructure and they were working with a traditional OEM, so a name brand server vendor, and they were outgrowing them. And so they sat down and they said, we're going to start building our own data centers. This was 2010. And when they started looking at their data centers, they said, all right, what can we get rid of? What do we not need based on our infrastructure growth? So they really became minimalistic and passionate about simplicity. And so they solved all these problems about, can we run the servers at a higher temperature? Do we actually need a UPS system? Can we do shared power across the back of the rack? What can we do for the data center itself? Do we even need raised floors in a data center? So if you've never been in a data center, a lot of them are built on raised floors. And that's from back in the day when they used to run uh, water pipes and cooling pipes underneath the floors, but that's not really necessary anymore. So you can get rid of that type of thing. And that's exactly what Facebook did. Once they solved all of these problems, they took it a step further, open sourced it. So large companies working directly with a manufacturer to create a custom product is not new. What is new is that Facebook took those designs and said, all right, we're going to open source our server designs, our switch designs, our storage designs, and even our data center designs and see what the community can do. And that's the start of open compute. And 10 years later, we're just now coming up on our 10th year anniversary. And 200 plus companies and driving towards 200 plus open source hardware contributions. But it is a very different mindset than software. Yeah, it's, it's a, probably a bigger investment as opposed to you really have to commit there. You mentioned 200 projects are now in the Open Compute Project. What's like the minimum entry? What do you need to be one of these projects? There's around 30 to 35 projects themselves, 200 contributions. So across those 30, we've had 200 contributions. Those contributions could be a specification for a server switch, could be written by Deutsche Telekom or AT&T along with a manufacturer, then they can co-author that specification. Or it could be a basic white paper, or it could be some design files. We've recently had a, a white paper on leak detection and immersion cooling technologies. So those type of things are starting to come along. In the past, it's been really just hardcore compute server specifications, but now we're seeing a broadening of those type of contributions as the community has grown. How much money do you need to have to actually think about having open hardware in your company? Is that a thing? Well, there's two, there's two ways to look at the, the fee structure. One is if I'm going to participate in open compute, the membership fees are quite basic. You can become an OCP member for just $2,500 a year, and you're able to make any of those type of contributions. And then, of course, it's a waterfall scale up based on the levels of membership that you wish to obtain. If I'm a manufacturer of hardware devices out there, the questions you have to ask is, well, what do I get by open sourcing my designs? There is such a huge fear that someone's going to take my designs and copy them. 
And we've never seen that in the 10 years that's been here because by the time you contribute a specification and your manufacturing, and if I'm a manufacturer, I can take that spec and then I start to go make it. By the time I'm ready to go to market, which is going to be about another nine to 12 months later, there's a next generation that people are already working on. So what big companies like in any company really is they like a dual sourcing strategy. They like to have one specification, give me multiple suppliers. That's what AT&T does. It's what Facebook does, Microsoft. They like that one SKU, give me consistency across the board that I can deploy in Asia, Europe, or America, but give me multiple suppliers that mitigates my supply chain risk. The same way that anybody would put half of their things in Azure and the other half in AWS as an example to leverage that ecosystem. So having that flexibility with one spec multiple suppliers is one of the benefits for the consumer within open compute. If I'm a manufacturer, being part of an open source community, I get access to those markets. I can sit down with Facebook, with Target, with AT&T, and I get a broader perspective about what the customer needs are and where things are headed. I have heard from some customers that they think that they can get a better insight into the roadmap of what's coming within an open source community than I can with just hearing what one particular vendor is getting ready to release in their next release or in their next ProLiant server, as an example. So there are some advantages, but again, it's a longer cycle for someone to move toward open source hardware. There's an extreme comfort level with having your hardware engineering team be very comfortable with an older legacy style hardware. The big names that you've grown up with that provide the 24 by seven support. So that whole model, that whole supply chain, Richard, has disaggregated. In the past, if I need a server, I pick up the phone, I call my OEM provider, and they have me two or three or 10 servers shipped within a few days. What happens now is that companies are more comfortable talking directly to the manufacturer to say, this is exactly what I need. So they can bypass that OEM. That has its advantages, which we've talked about. The, one of the disadvantages is the fact that I like that OEM support. What I want is the benefits of buying direct from the manufacturer that I get with the flexibility and the price. What I don't like is who's going to take care of it 24-7 for me. So it takes a certain type of customer that really gets this model. And I'm getting to the software piece, which has been really key to the growth of open compute. The types of companies that are looking at open compute are companies that have a, an open source mindset. They have a cloud native mindset where software is going to define everything. So you no longer need to run your heavy proprietary software on a proprietary box sitting in the corner of a central office if I'm a telco. I'm software defined everything now. I can commoditize and disaggregate the hardware from the software. Now I don't care what brand of a box it is. It can be a generic white box piece of hardware sitting there at a fraction of the cost. And I'm just going to have software run everything. And that's the point of when that happens in industries, you start to see this customer pull. It's happening now in telcos. FinTech gets it. Gaming gets it. Traditional banking, traditional healthcare insurance companies do not get it yet, but they will. It's going to come. The first time I heard about like a supply chain attack was when Bloomberg wrote a article about how supermicro systems chips were getting hacked by the Chinese and Apple and AWS and all these other companies were exposed by it. Some say it was a false article. Some say it wasn't. What is your insight on not just that, 
but just a supply chain attack in general when it comes to hardware and how does the OCP fix it? Yeah, Justin, it is something that is been an interesting position that has taken place across the supply chain and the ODMs and who's driving it are what we call prosumers. So the Facebooks, Microsoft, and Googles of the world, they're professional consumers because they buy so many servers. And what's mandatory now is this root of trust. From the time that a server's made in, in, in Asia, who's loading the firmware on, who's managing that transportation all the way to the white glove service that I get when it's handled at my data center and then deployed. So this root of trust piece is ripe for open source. And that's a separate project with an open compute now around security and security layers across all 30 of our projects. But there's a dedicated security track that's going to be developing the root of trust across every device that comes through open compute. And the firmware is a great example of where we have, about 18 months ago, we announced the Open Systems Firmware Project. And that is where, for firmware in the past, has always been proprietary. And OCP's effort to break that open, to start doing Open Systems Firmware. And what the prosumers are doing is now, they're going to dictate on the front end to the suppliers and the manufacturers to say, if we are going to buy a server from you, it has to be Open Systems Firmware compatible. And that's going to give them insight into that and be able to, to run a more secure firmware. They can check caches and make sure that everything's up to par and everything like that. And that's just like an open source license. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And what this is also leading to is a ripple effect. And the benefit of an open system firmware is twofold. One is what I just mentioned, the security aspect, being able to take a look at that. The other is the second user or the sustainability angle. When a server is decommissioned, most of the management and the firmware does not allow me to reuse it very effectively. With open systems firmware, I can now decommission that server, take it out of my data center, and that open systems firmware allows me to flash the firmware that I need on it and then go deploy that server again to a second user or a third user. So there's this second user economy or what we call circular economy that's happening now within what Google, Microsoft, Facebook, all the hyperscalers now have a second use plan because they need to for sustainability. And that is on the front end, on the design phase. And then that open systems firmware allows for a second user market that's developing quite aggressively. So sustainability as in save the earth or save money? Both, but save the earth primarily. What's happening in Europe is you have... Europe is always at the forefront of regulations when it comes to sustainability and designs. There are initiatives in Europe now around server efficiency. The servers need to run at a certain level of efficiency at load and also at idle. There are heat reuse out of data center initiatives. For example, the Netherlands, you cannot build a new data center in the Netherlands unless you have a heat reuse. How are you going to repurpose the heat generated from that data center? So all of these things are being measured aggressively in Europe, and they'll go to other regions as well. What the second user, how it comes into play is you have three different scopes when it comes to carbon footprint, scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Scope one is the, the creation of the, the, the fossil fuels. So it's the first big block of direct emissions. Scope two is more of the, say, the electricity that you buy or the diesel that you run at the data center 
for the backup generators. Then scope three is all the embodied energy. And the embodied energy itself are all the servers that are sitting inside and all the IT equipment that's sitting inside of your data center. So big companies and companies all across Europe are now required to measure not only scope one, scope two, but now they're required to measure scope three. So I can take those second user servers and now my embodied energy has dropped considerably because I'm no longer buying brand new servers. I'm buying second user gear, if that makes sense. So I'm, I'm a bit of a, of a newbie to the open hardware space. So you have to give me, I'm not just asking this because I hope that our listeners are cared for. I frankly don't know. You mentioned that you're basically invested in helping people have hardware and run hardware better for their own particular companies. That seems to me actually to be at ends with cloud native, where you're running your stuff on the cloud, on someone else's cloud. You don't have to have hardware internally. Can you talk about how you see that conflict? What I'm talking about, let's say a software-defined network, as an example, people are still running private clouds and private ecosystems. There was a gentleman that was running Compute for Uber a couple of years ago. He's no longer there, but he'd mentioned he has a tripod approach to the way that he was going to be doing it. He was going to run a third of his estate in Azure, a third of it in AWS, and then a third of it he wanted in his private cloud because he's running software all around that. So everybody's running a hybrid cloud environment. And he said he wanted his private cloud to look just like his public cloud. And so that's why you want to use the hardware that the big guys are using, the commoditized hardware, in the same form factor, in the same wide open data center, and the same high efficiency, OCP optimized type of infrastructure. So that's the point that I was getting at. And I don't know if I did a great job of explaining it, but that's what I meant by cloud native. No, that does help a lot, which actually it leads me to a second question, which you mentioned Uber in particular. Uber runs an unsustainable model, in my opinion. They tend to undercut labor unions. They tend to have more cars driving around for no obvious reason. We should all be using buses. It's an environmental issue. And I think Uber itself is like a company which has had a lot of questions attached to it, whether or not they have good work practices and whether they care for their workers, whatever banner they may be under. So if you're helping to improve Uber's private cloud and partially also the public cloud by allowing them to do work together with OCP and with other managers. How is that not in the end leading towards a non-sustainable earth? And how do you reckon with that conflict? Just to be clear, Uber is not a member of Open Compute yet, but the same question could be applied for a lot of our other members. So Alibaba, Tencent, JD.com, you name it. This is why it's so important, I think, for the circular economy approach. The amount of hardware coming out of these hyperscale data centers, I mean, Microsoft announced they're going to be building between 50 and 100 data centers this year alone in the next year. Wow. Apple going to be spending $450 billion on chipsets and designing their own infrastructure. What these hyperscalers are doing is going to cause exactly what you were talking about, Richard. It's just going to be this treadmill of what is sustainable. So the only part that I can see that's redeeming about this fact is that OCP designs use a lot less energy, between 30 to 50% less energy than a normal standard server. If you're going to be using a server, which these hyperscalers are, you better be using an efficient one. The designs of the data center, you can get rid of so much CapEx in designing a data center. Probably you can build a data center for half of what you could a traditional tier three data center by using OCP type of designs. And that second user piece, it's really imperative that you take those second user Hardware. And when I say second user, a lot of people think, well, I'm just selling it on the used market. I'm selling it to emerging countries. That's not the case. We have large enterprises that are taking the hardware coming out of these hyperscale data centers that oftentimes is less than three years old. 
a lot of these hyperscalers don't even keep their hardware for more than three years and they're out of it. That still has a lot of life for, if I'm a small and medium-sized business in anywhere else in the world, they can still use that hardware for five years, as long as it's ready to go. And we have that company that's taking that, sanitizing it, doing what it needs to do to make sure all the proprietary stuff is wiped off. Hard drives, some of the companies require hard drives to be shredded, things like that. But you can sit there and load open systems firmware on it and do open source software and you're off and running. But Richard, I agree. It is daunting at times to think about all the negative impact of making people grow faster and better. I really honor you for answering that really tough question. I was hesitant to ask it. And thank you so much. That's uh, really useful. Speaking of like refreshing hardware, I just finished a book called Flash Boys. And one thing that they were talking about is these high frequency trading firms that will update their hardware every six months just to gain a micro nanosecond millisecond or whatever. Just like just even just a little because it can make a difference between a million dollars a minute and negative a million dollars a minute. So when you said that, I was like, wow, this is not just the high frequency traders. It's also the big guys and gals. Quick question. So I talked to an ex-Googler who was like, probably like employee number five when GCP was getting all built up. He said when he left, Google was importing 30 tons of hard drives every single day. Monday through Sunday. Does that sound right? I mean, I believe him, but you work with a lot of different companies. So is that a normal thing? (laughs) That seems like a lot, but I'm blown away by the numbers that these hyperscalers put out all the time. I mean, the Facebook data center, it's blue lights. There's hardly anybody around because of the way that they've optimized. It's like going to a movie and yeah, I have no idea if it's right or not, but it sounds like a lot, and I'm, I still wouldn't be surprised. By the way, good book on Flash Boys. I enjoyed that book as well. That's and good. yeah, just crazy, but you're right. And that's why you take a look at NVIDIA stock, and you'll know why the, the GPU chips are doing very well. It's not crypto. Nope. That's right. I think that was uh, Miles Ward from the Community to Cloud Native podcast that actually Justin and weirdly right. I are parting the headline. For those of you who like listening to us talk way too much, really exciting episode. Sorry to put that little shameless plug no. in there. Thank you. You mentioned crypto. Are a large amount of your clients crypto people? Not that many. No. Yeah, not that many. There's a few that are doing some crypto up in the Nordics, but for the most part, the crypto market is not necessarily designed to adopt OCP as fast. There are some specific requirements that they're looking for that I think we'll see more and more of it as we come along. But right now, no, I would say there's probably less than 10% of the the client base now is crypto. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask a little bit more about your background. I've been looking at your LinkedIn and I see that you have just a tremendous amount of time working in Asia for Microsoft. But after that, you kind of shifted from just the hardware space to the open side of hardware. And it looks like back in 2020, you even studied open source community development. And I'd like to know at what point in time did you, or did you have an aha moment? Or was there a point in time where you just thought, okay, well, this is bigger than just hardware? I'd say there were two things that came to mind. One is when I was with Microsoft, I had the opportunity to go through a few of their licensing changes. And so if you've ever had a customer segment assigned to you and go try to explain to them 
a new Microsoft licensing scheme. It is a challenging and enlightening several months explaining why things have changed. My first exposure to open source was when I went to Rackspace, and that's at the time that they were just launching OpenStack. And so I didn't even understand, I didn't get my head around what open source communities did or, or but when I saw the, what they were trying to do with cell support to private cloud support even on OpenStack, I started to watch all of these small consulting companies come up saying that they're offering OpenStack support. And there were probably 30 or 40 of them at the first few OpenStack summits. And then I slowly, over just an 18-month period, Eric, I started watching the mergers and acquisitions and all of the consolidation that happens within an open source ecosystem. And I saw the pace that happens. And I thought, wow, this is a pretty interesting business model in the way that, that things move quickly. And there's a lot of M&A that happens in open source software when it works well. So then from then on, I was always looking more toward open source oriented companies. I knew for a fact that SaaS and open source together were going to be pretty interesting offers. So were you one of the founding members of the OCP or were you brought in after? I was brought in after. Yeah, I was brought in about uh, four years, three years after it started. 2011, and I joined in 2013, 2014. Before the call is over, I'd like to hear a little bit more about Open UK, but I know we're currently on a kind of a different topic right now. I do want to get back to that. Eric, I would love to get back to Open UK, but we may not have time. In case we don't, we've actually interviewed the Open UK founder, Amanda Brock. That was episode 49. So listeners, if you want to hear that conversation more about Open UK, check out episode 49. I just want to go back just a bit. So besides memberships, how does the OCP generate revenue? Two main revenue streams, membership. And we hold two big summits every year. One is in California. In this one will be in November. We are planning to have it in person. It'll probably be a hybrid event, but the way that things are shaping up, it'll be in person in California in November. And the other one then is a regional summit in Europe that takes place. But those are the only two revenue streams that we have. And we have a small team, only of a handful of people full-time. Did COVID really take a hit? (laughs) Or did you do like a virtual thing? How did you deal with that? We did. Last year, we switched entirely to virtual. And we've, just like everyone else, there's not been any difference there. There has been a couple interesting things that I've noted is that there's been a bit of a migration. And I don't know if you've seen this in other open source communities, but there's been a little bit of a migration toward communities during the last 18 months, our membership increase. When I would have guessed, if I had to forecast, that this would have been one thing that would have fallen off or at least stabilized. Are you seeing that in other organizations where membership and activities increasing in the last year? That's just a really difficult question. It differs for each of the major communities I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. Because it really depends on the community. You you won't even tell outside of the own your communities that you belong to already. In my communities that I belong to, certain technology aspects, I think, got a little bit more attention. Non-JavaScript based front-end development is taking off and there's been a lot of people jumping on that wagon. But as far as anything noticeable through COVID, I really couldn't tell you. But then again, I didn't go out and do that myself. I will say that donorship has gone down. It's really hard to get in front of people when you don't have a coffee track. And a lot of you know people like the PSF, I'm not saying their donors have gone down, but for example, the PSF mainly uses PyCon. 
to fund themselves. And without PyCon, with it being virtual, it's been difficult. And so they've had to adjust. And Eva has done some amazing work there. They have a new dashboard for donors. It's super awesome. You should go check yeah. it out. But it's been hard. One thing that I noticed is when it comes to community or just these conferences, I think going forward, every conference after COVID is going to be hybrid because I attended KubeCon virtually. And one of my buddies gave a talk. It was a very, a talk that would maybe get 20 people in a sidetrack in real life. Get 124 folks. Crazy. Well, the, the, the question on that, though, is that it's the intention of the attendee. So for going to a conference, paid conference, I would think that the relationships that you would build during that time are really the, the primary goal of the conference because the content itself is usually provided at a later date publicly. So in my view, I think that conference attendance would go down. Did you see that at all in last year that you just had fewer attendees or is it the same amount? Are you seeing a consistent growth? Now we went from 3000 in person to over 10,000 virtual. And then even in our China day, which was specific China day in local language, we had over a hundred thousand streaming on WeChat. Oh, uh, how many? Over a wow. hundred thousand. How does that translate to... Sorry, I'm, I'm blown away right now. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I'm not lying. I wasn't lying. Oh, you're right. How does that translate, though, to revenue? If that's yeah. one of your primary revenue things, did you have to lower the price of the tickets? Did you have a free tier? Like, no, you, uh, yeah. you can have as many people attend if it's free, but uh, was right. that... Yeah. You know, Eric, so that's the thing. You can get a lot of people going, but how do you... You can charge a nominal fee. There's only a certain amount that you're going to get. Some of these analyst conferences, I'm amazed that they're charging what they charge for a webinar. Pretty staggering numbers, but our fees are quite nominal. But Eric, one of the things that we struggled with is, well, how do you get value to the sponsors when most of the sponsors at a physical event is, I need to show my hardware. You need to walk up to the rack. I need to show you this piece of equipment. And in software, I can do a demo online, but in hardware, you want people coming up and taking a look at it and playing around with it. And so that's one area that we really struggled with is getting value to the sponsors. Yeah. Yeah. There is no expo hall. Yeah. So we're talking a bit about sustainability for OCP, which is really cool. And it, it is important to like sustain individual projects and your projects. That's fascinating. I want to talk a bit more about sustainability of open hardware in the long term. What challenges do you see for the entire field of open hardware? Because for open source, we're seeing a lot of difficulties, a lot of issues. We're seeing people coming in and doing open source. We're seeing proliferation of licenses where people can't do with anything. We're seeing community burnout, maintainer burnout, people not paying for open source maintainers. So for open hardware, what problems are there that are sort of epistemic and existential that you see getting worse? And I'm just curious about that. On the community itself, you're right about measuring the health of the community. We've done a good job. And I hats off to Georg and, and the guys at Chaos for putting together the way to measure community. Yeah. You were asking me, Eric, about why I took that course. I stumbled across it on that open source community management and really learned a lot and highly recommend it. So if anybody's out there that wants to check that course out, it's pretty well done. And that them. course was provided by the... Brandeis. University. Yep. Yes. So constantly getting projects to maintain. We have some that are really growing fast. For example, the areas that on accelerator modules, advanced cooling. Your question around how do we sustain 
that community and what areas. Having on open hardware itself, there's a couple industry issues. One is the definition of open. When I speak with certain hardware manufacturers, they can use the word open to describe maybe just a small component that it's open, but everything else is locked. So it's one of those things about what is our definition of open? How can we convey that to the market and avoid this gray area that a lot of the large OEMs, what you will see from a lot of the big names out there is they've started to develop open offerings slightly. And that's a result of the market pulling them this way and their customers asking for it. How fast they move toward that direction and how open you see that is one of the obstacles that we face. Because right now, there's only a few hardware manufacturers that will completely feel comfortable opening everything up. The others are still very nervous. So that's one issue about sustaining. The other one is the skill set and the people doing the hardware implementation. I spoke with a customer in Europe and he said, look, Steve, I've got enough money for five people on my team. So think of Facebook. They have thousands of engineers. This large, well-recognized name in Europe has five people on his team. And he said, what do I do with these five people? Do I stick three of them on Amazon where the services are already ready to go and they can start working right away? I have one guy that's lazy and he likes to go home at five. So that gives me one more guy. So do I take these guys off? I'm going to push back on that one. (laughs) I I must be lazy then. (laughs) So he said, so do I take guys off Amazon to have them go learn a brand new hardware skill set? Or do I do what I need to do to go hit my metrics now? So it's about the skill set internally. How do we ramp those people up? And another customer said, that's great, but I've already got 15 Cisco engineers. What do I do with them? Do I go teach them brand new open hardware that has nothing to do with Cisco? I've already trained these guys. So if I say, oh, we're moving this direction, they're going to leave. And then I've had other people in emerging countries start this and say, I'm just going to go to OEM because this OEM is going to pay for my training. So then I can move and migrate to a more populous Western country. So we have vendors out there that will pay for certifications and that's what they go do to then be able to migrate. So there's a lot of moving levers, man. It is not easy. So aligning incentives and community retention are still major problems in open hardware. Open software, you can crank through it, iterations, sprints, open hardware. It's very dependent on chip cycles, product cycles. And yeah, it's a lot of hurry up and wait in hardware. Steve, I love this conversation. Uh, It's been super enlightening to me. There's a lot of stuff I didn't know before. And I feel just like, wow, awesome stuff. I would love to have you on another time to talk about an OSI-like foundation for OCP, where you have your own open standards definitions. I would love to talk about how you do community retention better. I would love to talk about where you're going in the future and what you're personally most excited about. Unfortunately, I've let time get away from me. And this was so exciting that we just have to start wrapping up. We do have time for one last thing. Well, two last things. First, where can people learn more about you and where can they follow you on the internet so you can tell them more things about the questions that we couldn't answer? And two, our spotlight. So first question, where can people find you online? LinkedIn, Steve Helby, Twitter at Steve Helby, or Steve at opencompute.org is my email. And And that's Helby, H-E-L-V-I-E. That's correct. V is in Victor. Yep. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Any last thoughts? You have like a minute to five minutes if you really need it. No, this has been one of the more entertaining hours I've spent. Woo, woo. Yes, you guys are great. 
You know how to pander. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. Now is the time where we go back to spotlight. From overwhelming consensus, we've decided to change the spotlight slightly. So instead of just being open source, it's now going to be whatever is actually like coming up for you this week that you feel like just, man, this thing is so cool. I can't not talk about it. This will make it a lot easier for us, the panelists, because we have to think of open source projects that have changed our life every week. Can you imagine how hard that is for us? Thank you, our listeners, for letting us talk about our dogs. So with that having been said. <laughs> or the same thing again. And again, Eric, can you tell us what your spotlight is today, not including that bridge thing that you always talk about? Well, I keep thinking, what haven't I talked about? And one of the things that I, I love is a Gitpod, but I'm pretty sure I've talked about that before. Have I talked about Gitpod before? Uh, talk about it again. I don't remember. Okay. So Gitpod is a pretty freaking cool tool. They actually just had a conference and they, uh, let me see. I just want to. And while he's saying that Jeff Huntley is behind Gitpod, he is a super uber amazing person. We're having him on the podcast later this month. So if you're interested, Eric, what's Gitpod? Yeah. So Gitpod is essentially, it's an open source competitor to Codespaces by GitHub. It's a little bit different in that with Codespaces, you're actually requiring to have Docker. It's a little bit of Docker. Sometimes you can do Docker or you can put it up in their server, but it's a persisted workspace that you just set up and run stuff. Gitpod, on the other hand, in my view, is actually revolutionary when it comes to open source contributions, because what you can do is you can set up a Gitpod configuration on your GitHub repo. Somebody can click that button and it'll launch a whole development environment in the cloud with a VS code completely running to where you can get in, make your contribution, submit directly through Gitpod, and then you're out. So you don't have to worry about any hardware. You can do this on, I think, even on an iPad now. But I've been slowly migrating my applications to Gitpod simply because it's so easy. But also, I love the fact that I don't have to lug around my computer. I love the fact that I can go visit my mom and hop on her old machine and it's no issue at all. But also the best part is when you have a very complex application, Docker is not what everybody wants to use all the time. So Gitpod is a great middle ground there. So anyway, sorry, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. I'm big fans are awesome. Thank you. They also blow a lot of wind. Justin, what's your spotlight? Episodes 1 through 16 are back home. Thanks to Eric. Check them out. The very beginning of Sustain, the podcast, it was called Sustain Our Software. It had horrible intro music, but the content's still good. Orbit.love is a great tool for anyone running community management. I found a summer intern through Orbit.love, and that's freaking amazing. Awesome. Love it. We always go with the guests last. So my spotlight today is strangeparts.com or Strange Parts on YouTube. Scotty Allen is one of the smartest developers I know. He went to China, lived there, built his own iPhone in the Chinese market in Shenzhen, put it on YouTube, became world famous as a guy who did that, and then went on to make awesome stuff with open hardware. If you like open hardware, check out Scotty Allen. He's the best. Love him. Steve, what's your spotlight? My spotlight is not necessarily in the hardware world. It is in the just somebody doing some pretty amazing, innovative things in a very traditional area. And the guy's name, and you should follow him on Twitter, is Jason Mock, M-A-U-C-K. And he's just a farmer in Indiana, but his entire business model is constant canopy. It's about rotating crops and his, his innovation around how he's doing direct from farmer 
to restaurant is pretty amazing. Raising animals between the rows, movable, grazing, just some fantastic things. I cannot talk enough about this guy. His mindset and the way he's approaching farming these days is great. So Jason Mock, he also has a podcast called Mock Me. You can check that out as well. Love it. Thank you so much. All right, Steve, it's been a pleasure. We're really going to have you on again. This was amazing and I want to talk more. Until then, thank you so much. Richard, Justin, Eric, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve.